Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to Federal Society's webinar call. Today, October 25th, 2022, we discuss Vincent Philip Munis's new book, Religious Liberty and American Founding. My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm an assistant director of the practice groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Professor Michael McConnell, who is the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and the director of the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School. He's also a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and an author himself. We're moderating today's discussion with our speaker and other panelists, Dr. Vincent Philip Munoz, the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life at the Department of Political Science at Notre Dame and the concurrent Associate Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Dr. Munoz is the founding director of Notre Dame's University Undergraduate Minor in Constitutional Studies, directs Notre Dame's Tocqueville Program for Inquiry into Religion and Public Life, and perhaps most partners to today's program is the author of the recently published Religious Liberty in the American Founding. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our panel will have access to them when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Professor McConnell, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much. This is really a pleasure to be uh, on this program with Philip, whose work I've been following for Actually, I think all the way back to when he was in, in graduate school and uh, this uh, recently published book, uh, Religious Liberty and the American Founding, is a is a real contribution. I, I have to say in the last few years, uh, maybe because of the Supreme Court's and uh, uh, renewed interest in trying to get history maybe a little bit more accurately than they have in the past. I, I, maybe that's an over-optimistic statement, but I think that's true. Um, uh, we're, we're, we're really seeing much more serious work about uh, some of the fundamental questions in constitutional law. And, and uh, I, I highly recommend this book to anyone who would like an introduction into um, the, the, the connection between uh, the deep sort of theoretical sort of political theory and theological theory uh, held by the founders. And I don't mean to say there's one. I shouldn't use the word theory singular. One of the great things about this book is the way in which uh, Philip teases out uh, differences between figures that are actually allied in the cause for religious liberty, but from somewhat different perspectives. And that includes uh a wonderful chapter on uh, Madison Jefferson and Isaac Bacchus. <coughs> Bacchus was a uh, Baptist minister and great advocate for religious freedom. So they come to the same, excuse me, <coughs> the same place, uh, but uh, by different paths, different theories, and with different implications uh, for that. So. Uh, uh, and then the book connects the political theory. It's not just about that. It connects the political theory to a very close uh, lawyer-like textual, close textual reading of the of the founding era documents, uh, you know, especially uh, the framing of the First Amendment itself, but also uh, the framing of uh, each of the state constitutional provisions, which is uh, which are related uh, to the First Amendment. So, uh, and I have uh, nothing but praise for this. I I have many more reservations about Phillips' uh, application of this to uh, some modern uh, issues. But let's begin at the beginning. And you know, uh, Philip. Uh, some of our listeners may not be steeped in natural rights theory. Can you, one of the most important points you make in the book uh, is the, uh, is to root religious liberty in uh, a theory of natural rights. What does that mean and what difference does it make? Yeah, well, let me just begin by saying thank you uh, to Federalist Society, but especially to Professor McConnell. I, when um, the folks at the Federalist Society asked me if I was interested in doing this, and if I was, who 
who would I like to uh, be on a panel with? I, I said, well, um, Professor McConnell, I mean, he is the dean of church state scholars and uh, the, the leading church state scholar in the nation. Uh, and I said to them, and we disagree about something, so it'll be interesting too. So, um, so thank you, uh, Professor McConnell, uh, uh, for your time and, and for your, um, and for the kind words you said about the book. Uh, so you asked about natural rights. So, um, first of all, let me start with the word natural. I mean, and natural uh, is opposed to, I suppose, an acquired right. Uh, natural rights inhere in our human nature. Um, they pre-exist government. Um, uh, you know, so some rights come from the government, um, right to serve on a jury. Some rights do not. Uh, and the founders all held that religious liberty was a natural right. Um, the really foundation of natural rights theory is the idea that all men are created equal. Right? There are no natural rulers, no natural slaves. Um, I know what, what equality means in the Declaration of Independence and for the founders is, of course, controversial. But I actually think it's pretty clear that um, the, the founders believed in uh, human equality because we're equal in our rights, uh, in our natural rights. That's the plain language of the Declaration of Independence. Um, one of the most fundamental rights is the right, natural right to religious liberty. And uh, so natural rights, you know, are, are pre-exist and the government exists what to protect them. That's the language of uh, the next sentence in the Declaration of Independence is that uh, governments are created to secure uh, these rights. Um, and but the, the government also then at that point begins to define them. And this is often done through constitutions, but other fundamental uh, laws as well. Uh, how do we know the boundaries of natural rights uh, in, in their natural state? You, you, you talk about yeah. the law of nature, and I think that that's really what I'm asking you to. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's a very it's a very good question. And you're getting right to the sort of fundamentals here. So. The, the expression I like to use is um, natural rights have natural limits. Um, uh, I could use fancy language, but let me just illustrate it, what I mean with a very simple example, um, which uh, certainly will be familiar to all the lawyers out there. Um, we have a right to free speech, uh, but we don't have a right to libel someone. Right. Just to say false things about them or maliciously false things. Um, it's still speech. Right. If I'm saying untrue things about you that I you know, things I know that are not true. Um, everyone understands that libel is not part of free speech or the natural right of free speech. Um, the way the founders put it is that natural rights are bounded by a natural law. It's not so much that uh, to speak precisely. It's not that your natural rights are limited by something. It's just that natural rights have boundaries. And the boundaries of a natural right are set by the natural moral law, right? I have freedom of movement, but I can't hit you, right? That would be to transgress your rights. And so my one way of thinking about it is the, the limits of my rights are where your rights begin and, and vice versa. So you have a right to your reputation. My free speech right means I, I, I can say things about you, but I can't say false things about you. So it's not that we're balancing things. It's that... Uh, it's the natural rights only go so far. Exactly. That's that's a uh, elegant uh, way to <laughs> say exactly what I was trying to say. So how does that relate? The modern Supreme Court, since uh, at least since the 1940s, has spoken in terms of compelling governmental interests. So we have the right to free exercise of religion, but uh, not if the government has a compelling governmental interest. How does that compare? Is is that at all similar uh, to uh, your understanding of the of the natural rights theory of the Constitution? Yeah, I, I don't think so. And this is, you know, I obviously disagree with some other scholars here, and maybe we disagree a little bit on this. Uh, so, um, my understanding or my interpretation of the founders' natural rights understanding is um, when when the founders said we have an, an inalienable natural right to religious liberty. Whatever is protected is um, is protected. It can't be balanced against other competing uh, governmental interests. Um, I would point to the text of the First Amendment, right? Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So whatever free exercise is cannot be prohibited. It cannot be balanced against co a competing state interests or compelling state interests. Um, 
So I, I think the phrase I use in the book is it's narrow, but deep. The scope of the right is narrow, but it's deep, meaning it's if you ha if something is protected, it can't be balanced against. Now, the right has limits, right? Uh, so let me use a maybe a simple example. Um, uh, your right of religious liberty, just like your right of free speech, is bounded by the natural moral law. So your right of religious liberty doesn't include to do religiously motivated actions that would transgress the moral law. So if you practice a religion that included child sacrifice, right? Your right of free exercise doesn't include religiously motivated child sacrifice. Why? Well, because just like libel is not part of free speech, child sacrifice is not part of the right of religious liberty. All rights, natural rights are bounded by the natural law. But who gets to decide what is a, what are what are moral limits? Uh, yeah, yeah. So what what if I say it's immoral to uh, you know to to deprive same sex couples of uh, of being able to get married in church? Sure. So uh, let me give you the founder's answer. I mean, in a way, uh, Alexander Hamilton, the young Alexander Hamilton, in his farmer refuted essay articulates the, the common understanding is that these matters are accessible to reason. I mean, we can certainly disagree with them. Um, you know, th these are principles of justice. So there is a natural moral law. Uh, that there is a natural moral law doesn't mean we'll all uh, readily agree to what nature demands, just like that there is justice doesn't mean we'll all agree to what justice consists of. But at least in the founder's theory that we can reason about these things. And if you reason well, um, that's how we understand what the limits are. It's easier to start with easier cases than hard cases, but you proceed from the easier cases to, to the harder cases. Well, you know, I reason, you know, probably as much as anybody, you probably do too. And my experience is that seemingly reasonable people don't always agree with me. Uh, let's assume that there is some disagreement. I mean, again, let's the example of a, same-sex couple. Uh, I, I, there are reasonable people on both sides of, of that. Does the Democratic legislature choose between moral visions, or you know how do, how is this how is this hashed out? Yeah, so if it's a boundary to the free exercise right, we need to know you know who who draws the boundary and where and how. Yeah, so. Um... In practice, the first boundary drawing is by the people when they establish the government, right? This, if you go, you, you made a reference to, there's a chapter in the book where the uh, first two chapters uh, start with the state declarations of rights. And when you read those state declarations of rights, these were drafted between 17, 1776, Virginia Declaration of Rights was the first one, and um, the last of the founding era declarations of rights is 1784, was prior to the Constitution, uh, New Hampshire. What they say there, uh, these are statements of political principles adopted in the various states. Uh, the, the rights of conscience or the free exercise of religion is uh, in unalienable. That's their term. We'd say inalienable. They're there marking the boundary. Now, your question is, OK, well, what, what, what does that boundary include or not include? Um, and well, there's all sorts of interpretations, right? First, when. Congress or the legislative branch is making a law, right? They implicitly judge, is this something within our power or not? Um, if the right is inalienable, at least in my understanding, that means uh, the state has no jurisdiction to legislate over that right directly. So Congress would have to make its first determination. And then if there's an executive veto, then the executive and then ultimately the judiciary. Um, so these are the institutional mechanisms. I'm not saying anything that everyone listening doesn't know. They can err, of course, and you have to argue it out. I mean, I think that's what the founders would have understood. Um, I mean, let me just say, it's kind of like, what is commerce? You know, well, you know, Congress can regulate interstate commerce. It doesn't mean that there's, you know, we still have to reason what commerce is. And Hamilton puts forward a view and the modern Supreme Court puts forward a view and you have to argue it out and you have institutions to do that. But the fact that people disagree doesn't mean that there's not something that is commerce. Now, one of the points you make in the book is to emphasize the equality of first all human beings, but also uh, inferentially all uh, religious faiths. There have been 
a few scholars and, and very conspicuously Justice Stevens have argued that if we look to the original understanding, that would be a bad thing because the original understanding only protected Christians. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I, I think just Justice Stevens, and he's relying on other scholars, just makes a mistake there. Um, if you actually look at the religious liberty provisions, especially in these early state constitutions, they clearly specify that all, all individuals or all people, or sometimes all men, but men being the generic for all people, have the right of free exercise or rights of conscience. There, it is true, other places in the constitution talk about equal protection and some of those state provisions talk about equal protections for Christians, but these were in um, uh, civil and political rights, not in natural rights. The, the key is understanding that the, the, the founders drew, drafted their language very precisely. When they spoke about natural rights, they talked about all individuals. When they spoke about acquired like voting rights or political rights, they did sometimes limit it to Christians. That was controversial and debated at the time of the founding. Justice Stevens presumes that because there are some limitations uh, of political rights for Christians, the founders limited all rights to Christians. And it's just a, a, not a careful reading of the actual primary documents. And did that extend to Native American religions? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know of any documents that specifically reference to Native American religions, but I, the language of natural rights is not limited to Christianity. It talks about the rights of conscience or free exercise of religion, you know, as you know, more than, better than anyone else. And that would certainly seem to include Native American religions and non-Christian religions, uh, religions simply. Um, you know, the, the place where Christianity really appears uh, most clearly in the founding uh, states is religious tests for office. Um, various states did limit office holding to sometimes to Christians, sometimes just to Protestants. Uh, the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, if you, to be governor, you had to be a Christian. Um, other states limited it um, through an oath of office. You know, you had to um, uh, profess uh, belief in the Old and New Testament, therefore excluding Jews. But these were more controversial. Um, and men like Madison said, you know, there should be no religious tests for office. Uh, and, and over time, these religious limitations on office holding based on religion were eliminated. Um, uh, but they did exist in some of the founding era states. Now, this is one of the difference, one of the small differences. There's some big ones, too. But between Jefferson and Madison is that Jefferson thought that clergy should not hold public office and Madison disagreed with him about that. Yeah. Jefferson wanted to go all the other, the other way. He, he was like, wait, let's get rid of the religious tests for office, limiting it to Christians. And then let's exclude the clergy. Uh, Madison wanted to get rid of all the religious tests for office. And maybe I, let me just clarify one thing. These religious tests for office were not usually defended in terms of religious tests for office. Actually, they said, no, we're, Look, we limit office holding to you have to have a certain, reach a certain age, right? You have to be 35 to be president or 30 to be a member of the Senate or whatever it is in the states. Well, why 35? Well, because you want an individual of mature judgment, right? We don't let anyone be governor, right? We want certain, you, know, you have to reside in the state. You have to be a certain age because we want you know, wisdom or prudence. The defenders of the religious test for office said, well, we also want virtue, What's the test we use for virtue? Well, we'll say if you're, uh, 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 you know, willing to express belief in God, or if you're a Protestant. But notice how they're defended, not we're a Christian nation. We want men of virtue, and we're using religion as a proxy for being virtuous. Now, Madison thought that was wrong, that you can't use religion as a proxy for virtue. But the way it's defended is not... We're, you know, we're a sectarian regime and only Protestants are of good standing. Uh, so there, there is a real shift in the defense, in a liberal direction, in the defense of even religious tests for office. Well, one of the reasons I bring up Native American religion is because uh, one of the most famous recent cases, although I guess 1990 is that recent, I'm showing my age when I think that's recent, because uh, I remember when it happened. Um, 
many of our audience probably weren't even born yet, uh, but uh, this was the famous peyote case involving a sacramental practice of the Native American church, which involved uh, the ingestion of a uh, hallucinogenic substance, which is on the federal governments and all, uh, I guess, every state's uh, list of controlled substances. And these are illegal drugs. Uh, and yet, uh, at least the anthropological evidence in the case indicated that it's been you know, at least 500 years, maybe longer, that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the Native, what we now call the Native American church, but going back and, you know, under under uh, indigenous names, uh, you know, for 500 years, this has been a part of their religious practice. Um, how do we go about analyzing whether people whether somebody who's in that in the Native American church has a right to use this as their sacrament instead of, you know, we in, in, in my faith, we use wine. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, so the, the, the Smith case, I was in high school. You know, I was in high school when it started in college when the decision was, came down. And in a way, this is the case that got me really interested in these questions because I, I remember reading the case for the first time and um, uh, reading Justice Scalia's opinion and thinking that was right. And then reading the dissents and thinking, no, no, they're right. And really trying to think through um, um, this issue. I mean, sort of started everything. Um, uh, so here's where, you know, this is where you and I disagree on this. So I would say it's not exactly that Scalia was right, because I think there's all sorts of problems with his opinion. And he basically turns the free exercise clause into an equal protection clause, which I think is not quite right. But in general, I think Smith was resolved correctly, meaning that there's no constitutional right uh, uh, to be exempt from a generally applicable law that makes peyote illegal. Um, in practice, that means for you know, the individual uh, practitioners of the Native American church that the practice of their religion has become illegal. So lots of people, yourself included, you're the most articulate defender of this, have said, well, you've just effectively made religious exercise impossible, illegal. Uh, my response to that- Prohibited is, is the constitution. Prohibited, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, my response to that is that the, the First Amendment was not designed to solve that problem. That the, the mischief that the First Amendment, was, the Free Exercise Clause was designed to resolve was government legislating on religion directly. You must go to church or you cannot go to church, right? Uh, and that, so the language of incidental burdens, right? That this law didn't mention the Native American church, it didn't mention. But let's get back to, I mean, just what's the connection between this and your natural rights theory? Do uh, Native American members of this religion, do they have a natural right to use peyote in their religious ceremonies? Yeah. So Native so American. Yeah, sure, sure. Right. yeah. So and, and is it religious? So uh, all individuals have a natural right to exercise their religion. When we set up a government, we uh, uh, give our consent to a government and we charter it with certain powers, right? Those, we don't give that government authority over our religious exercises, but let me finish here. We do give the government authority over what's generally known as the health, wealth, and morals of the community, right? This community, the state of Oregon said, the health, wealth, and morality of the residents of Oregon means we're going to classify hallucinogenic drugs as illegal. The members of the community in consenting to the government have consented to abide by that law. Let me finish. When they say our religious right is inalienable, what they're saying is you, the state of Oregon, or you, the national government, if we're talking about the First Amendment, you can't make laws directly on the on religious exercises. You can't say you must worship on Saturday or you may not go to confession or whatever. This gets back to the mischief analysis I had begun, right? The inalienability of the right of free exercise, at least in my understanding, it's not really my understanding, it's my explanation of, or my best understanding of the founder's understanding. It's not necessarily my position. 
the founders were saying, we're withdrawing or we're not actually giving jurisdiction or state authority, the state authority over making laws that target religious exercises as such. But we have given the government authority to make laws on the morals of the community or the health of the community that may incidentally burden. So to the Native Americans, the response is that power has been granted. You don't have to join the political community. Once you have joined the political community, you are subject to the law. The political community can give you an exemption, a discretionary exemption, but it's not part of your right of religious free exercise that's been reserved. At least that's the nat that's the founders' natural rights understanding as best I can determine. So I don't I don't so natural rights are before the existence of a government and they have boundaries. We talked about what the boundaries are, although it's you know they're gonna be hard to sure you know, to actualize, but we the the law of nature. Uh, sets the boundaries of the right of free exercise. I get all that. But now you tell me that the boundary is not the law of nature, but is, is, is a limitation on government. And so you're saying that government can legislate for health, wealth, wealth safety, welfare, and morals, but not for religious reasons. But that's not state of nature logic. That's political society. That's a limitation on government. It's not a definition of, of a natural right. Well, because so this is the where the work of the word inalienability. What does it mean to possess an inalienable natural right? It, and, and, and let me give you start again with a simple example. So the right to revolution is an inalienable natural right. So this it's a natural right. We we have the, what justified why we were justified in overthrowing uh you know king george the third is because he w was being tyrannical at least so we said so we said look we're withdrawing our allegiance we have a natural right of revolution in fact that natural right is inalienable because you can't turn it over to the government to secure it the nature of the right itself means that you know by by definition by understanding it's inalienable right Okay, R religious liberty is an inalienable right. For the founders, that meant there's a certain realm of our natural freedom, right? How we worship, that we don't give a gov government authority over. That not giving authority over means government can't legislate directly on that matter. We do give government authority over property, which is a natural right, health, wealth, and morals, as we we're talking about. Let's, let me just use property. So the right to property is a natural right, but it's an alienable natural right. So in the state of nature, I pick the apple, it's my apple, I've mixed my labor. In civil society, we have property law, right? When, have, when do we have a valid contract? Well, there's laws to specify that. The laws, you know, it's not when you have a handshake, it's when you have two signatures or whatever. So the role of government in securing property right is to facilitate the acquisition and enjoyment of property rights by passing laws that specify for a particular community the dictates of the law of nature for that community. The law of nature is uh, when you make an agreement, keep it. In civil society or in political society is this is what you need to make an agreement. So we alienate our property rights, meaning we turn over to the government the power to make laws to facilitate to facilitate them. Religious liberty, we say, is an inalienable natural right. We do not turn over power to the government to specify how we worship, on whether we can worship. Uh, government can't make laws on religious exercise. It's that power is withheld. So that's why I say government can't tell the Native American individuals, you must worship this way or you may not worship this way. But when government is acting within its given jurisdiction, in this case, the health, wealth and morals of the community, Native Americans and everyone else are subject to that law. At least that's the social compact natural rights understanding. Uh, so the natural right of religious exercise is inalienable, meaning that we don't give it up to the government. But the and, and it, I assume it carries with it the boundaries from the state of nature. 
So it's a bounded right, but bounded by the state of nature, which is to say by the equal the rights of others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the boundary, the state of nature has nothing to do with how the f- government frames its laws because the government doesn't even exist. And the, as I understand the, your, your right position and, and Scalia's position is that if it is a neutral and generally applicable law, then the government can enforce it, whether or not it inter- interferes with your exercise of religion. And if it's framed in a non-neutral, not generally applicable way, that they can't. But the natural right, I would have thought, was the same. This doesn't sound like it doesn't seem to me that that interpretation of the free exercise clause has anything to do with natural rights. What it has to do with is a theory of, uh, you know, rule of law government. The government ought to operate according to, you know, to neutral and generally applicable laws. It, uh, it, it, it seems to me that you're conclusions here might be reasonable. There's a perfectly good political theory behind insisting on neutrality and general applicability, but it isn't natural. It it can't be natural rights theory because natural rights theory is about what we have a right to do and the boundaries of that, not how government operates. Well, yeah, let me try to clarify. So, um, the state of nature is just the state of where there's no common authority. Okay. Within the state of nature, uh, we have certain liberties. We call those natural rights, right? I can pick an apple. I can worship as I wish. Those natural liberties are limited by the law of nature. So the state of nature, according to the founders understanding is governed by a law of nature. Natural rights are part of that law of nature. So the law of nature says, uh, if I own my own labor, I pick the apple as mine. The limits on my uh, using my labor to acquire things are I can't take your apple. That would violate the law of nature. So the right of acquisition, the natural right of acquisition is limited by the natural law. I don't have a right. I have a right to pick the apple from the apple tree. I have a, I don't have a right to take your apple. Okay. That's all enforced. Uh, who executes the law of nature? Well, we do. Everyone does. Everyone has the executive authority of the state of nature. So if I take your apple, you know, you can... Uh, 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 make it an ill bargain, as Locke would say, right? You enforce the law of nature. When we enter into a social compact and create a government, we transfer our executive power to enforce the law of nature to the state. So that's the police powers of the state. And we transfer, we alienate some of our rights, not all of them. We alienate our natural rights. Now, what that means is we give the government that we create authority to make laws to regulate those rights. Regulate has a precise meaning to make regular, to facilitate the enjoyment of. That just gets us back to where we were before. So property is an alienable natural right. We give government authority to make laws to protect our property, how when contracts are valid and all that. When the founders use the language of inalienable, that that conveys governmental jurisdiction. That is, we don't give government authority over that right. This is the connection between natural rights theory or inalienable natural rights theory and governmental power. To say something is inalienable means there's no grant of governmental jurisdiction. So inalienable rights are inherently connected to governmental jurisdiction. So let me just tell you that. So the way I would have thought, you know, let's say we all believe the first half of your book and I find it very persuasive. Uh, So the Native Americans have a natural right to practice their religion. This involves the ingestion of peyote. Now, the Constitution comes along. No, we didn't actually consult them at the time of the Constitution, but let's pretend for a moment that they're part of the social contract. That's my point. So. Uh, but they don't alienate. They keep their natural right of uh, of religious exercise, which includes uh, the, the the sacrament of their that they believe their their gods uh, uh, recognize. And uh, I would have thought that the significance of being an inalienable right is that 
the government's role in the state of civil society is simply to define what that right is. That is what the natural right is, which includes defining the boundary. This is why I asked you way back at the beginning, you know, who defines the the boundary. And I think you said, you know, in the first instance, it's the legislature and then yeah. the executive has a role in the court. So that's all defining the boundary. But I would have thought that uh, whether that whether what the government is doing is legitimate or not, it respects inalienable natural rights or not, it has to do with the substance of the law, not how it's formed. So I don't care whether it's new. I don't see why we care from a natural rights point of view, whether it's neutral and generally applicable, I would think what we would ask is, is the ingestion of peyote something that is beyond the boundary of the natural law? That is, does it injure somebody else? Does it respect the equal rights of others? Is it profoundly immoral in, in some you know sense that we could all agree, to which I think the answer to all those things is no. Uh, uh, I, I agree with that. And, and, Everything and, you just said. And, yeah. and so, why doesn't why isn't that the answer? There, it's they didn't give up this natural right. It's exactly the same. The boundaries are the same. Government defines the boundary. But the government doesn't ignore the boundary. No, no. I, I, so I agree with everything you, you just said, though. It has a different implication than I think you... Uh, I would draw a different implication than you do. Okay. So from the perspective of the governmental authorities, government has been given the... Uh, let's just assume government has been given the authority to regulate the health, wealth, and morality of the community. Uh, it has not been given authority to regulate religious exercises. Okay. Um, from the government's point of view, it really has nothing to do with general applicability um, uh, in terms of religious rights. What it, government says, the people say, we want a laws protecting our community from hallucinogenic drugs. From the question uh, from the government's point of view is, is this within our authority? Can we pass a law prohibiting peyote and other hallucinogenic drugs? Uh, the answer in this case, the state of Oregon was yes. Now, if you say this law uh, is not necessary, peyote does not harm anyone. Um, you know, it, it, it encroaches on people's liberty, including their uh, religious exercises. Uh, that's, those are good reasons for the government not to pass that law. It's a very bad law. It's like when speed limits were all 55 everywhere. Those were bad laws. I mean, government had authority to pass speed limits, but you know, I lived in Los Angeles. It was dumb. No one followed the laws. They were bad laws, at least for that community, right? The, but the, our question is, does government have authority to pass a law involving hallucinogenic drugs? If the answer is yes, then the answer is yes. And it might be a dumb law, but it's still a valid law. So now, does the government has have the power after the passage of the uh, 18th Amendment to uh, uh, to prohibit the the use of alcohol. Let's assume there was no exemption for uh, the Catholic Mass. And the Holstead Act happened to have an exemption, but that you're so, saying that was not constitutionally required. It was. Uh, well, it was required politically to get them a pass. Let's leave that aside. It would not be constitutionally required. Um, okay. No, it would not be constitutionally and, and does required. The, the government has the power to tell people that they have to testify to evidence of a crime, I think. So that means that the government doesn't have to respect the, con the confidentiality of the confessional. There's not a uh, by the way, let's, let's very say, first written uh, yeah. pre-exercise case in America, in New York, protecting that yeah. particular. Exercise. But again, but the, the 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 First Amendment is not the aim of the First Amendment. At least, from my understanding, the founders' understanding of natural rights. If we give a natural rights construction to the First Amendment, the aim of the First Amendment is not to resolve all matters of injustice to make sure uh, every religious person is never encroached upon in their freedom. That's not the purpose of the First Amendment. The purpose of the First Amendment was to withdraw or actually not to withdraw jurisdiction, to recognize that a certain certain powers were not given to the government. 
government and the powers it does have to do criminal investigations and, and prosecutions to protect the health, wealth of the community may pass laws that religious individuals of certain sex or certain beliefs do not like, right? And feel very much burdened by. That is the nature of lawmaking. The government can make exemptions to that and say, look, our, in general, we need the ability to compel anyone to testify when they have knowledge of a criminal activity. But in certain circumstances, we're going to make exemptions, say for lawyers, right, because they need to represent their clients or for psychologists or medical professionals, perhaps even for uh, spiritual counselors. So they can make exemptions to those cases. Right. Those would be wise and prudent to do so. The rule of law is not perfect, but there's no right to those exemptions. I'm saying because that's not what the First Amendment was designed to do. If you as I do in this book, say, let's give a natural rights construction. It can be that the natural rights, uh, a natural, the First Amendment doesn't solve all problems, but nor should we expect the First Amendment to solve all problems, right? I mean, think of Federalist 84. This is an important point. Federalist 84, the, uh, the Constitution itself is a Bill of Rights. We don't need a Bill of Rights, Hamilton said. Well, why? Well, because of representation, right? I mean, the, the primary way your rights are respected is through because we elect them. So if the peyote law is a bad law, it shouldn't be passed. If it's a good law that has bad consequences for this one group that we don't uh, think it law should be applied for, we can pass an exemption for them. But the First Amendment was not designed to solve all those problems, all those imperfections in the rule of law. Uh, we should move to questions from the audience. Uh, <laughs> I may I, if I'm going to have the last word, though, of course, you can. Of my last word, of course, it doesn't solve all problems. Yeah. But it was supposed to, the problem it was supposed to solve is that people are supposed to continue to have their natural right to worship God in accordance with conscience, which I think I would have thought includes the confessional it includes peyote. It includes these things. We now we may want for other reasons to limit the government to neutral and generally applicable laws. But in terms of the natural right of religious freedom, it's the right to exercise your faith in accordance with conscience. But we should move to the audience. I'm not sure how we do that. But. Let's see. I'd see. I think we have to. Uh... Click on the Q&A and I see eight questions there. Um, hey, do you want to just, do you want to? Um, let me try to. Let why me don't you, to, if, let, why <laughs> don't you read the first one and I'll read the second. Okay. Um, Jeffrey Wood asks, this is the first one that popped up. I have not read it yet. Without having yet read the book, which I hope to pick up. I too hope you pick it up. Uh, available at Amazon.com and other fine booksellers. Um, I don't know whether Professor Munoz is, addresses the pre-existing common law tradition, but I'd be interested in his thoughts related to that. For example, Cromwell's comment that he would rather permit Islam in England than compel religious conformity, obviously either mooted or proved by current realities. I, I don't really address uh, the common, uh, common law background. Um, um, not because it's not interesting or important. I just, you can only do so much. So the book really starts with, uh, in the founding era, you know, really in 1776 with the state declarations of rights. Um, so I don't, I, I, I just don't address, um, that material. I don't know, Michael, you have a new book coming out on the establishment clause. Will you address, and you've written extensively on religious liberty before America, especially in the English experience. Will you address those, those issues in your book? Well, yes, but I think the U.S. is a is a conscious departure from the common law. In England, you did not have a right of free exercise of religion, and there was an established church, uh, and there were religious tests for office. You know, we we uh, we deliberately uh, uh, departed uh, from that model, and uh, I'm not sure that's an authentic Cromwell quote. But if it is, well, Cromwell is sounding like James Madison, uh, but. That wasn't the law, uh, and 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 the, and while Cromwell was in charge, they were persecuting religious minorities almost as viciously as the as the established church did. Only a differently, they were persecuting a different group. Um, the next question is from uh, Victoria Sutton. Really great question. Uh, apparently, she's written an article about 
uh, religious about uh, Native American sacred sites involving land. How do you and how do you analyze these land questions? So an example of this would be, uh, you know, Navajo Mountain is sacred to the Diné people. Uh, you know, what if the government decides to put a sewage dump on the top of the mountain? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't. Um trying to remember in the book, I talk about some cases, not every case, obviously. And I don't think I do any other than the peyote case. I don't talk about any Native American cases uh, per se. So, um, but the analysis of the book would be that uh, uh, assuming that there was no targeted government action, like, you know, the government, assuming there's nothing in the record that says we're going to go, you know, build a sewage treatment plan or whatever it is on this land because we want to limit the Native Americans' ability to practice their religion. Let's just assume that for whatever reasons they select this site and this site is owned by the government. Um, it would just go to the political process. Uh, it might be that it's unwise and uh, we shouldn't build a, uh, build on that land, um, but there would be no constitutional right not to build on the land, right? Again, this gets back to our earlier conversation. Um, I read the First Amendment as um, it, it's not even it's, it's a very it's a narrow pr protection, but general applicability is not really the key question for me. The key question for me is: Does this law target religious exercises as such? This is why this is one of my criticisms of Scalia. Scalia in Smith doesn't say what the Free Exercise Clause actually prohibits. What it prohibits is a law, for example, the Santeria case uh, occurred three years later. Here, the city council, this was outside of um, Miami, the city of Hialeah, they, they were trying to criminalize the exercise of a specific religion of Santeria. They, they passed ordinances targeting a religious exercise, right? a series of ordinances, and they, they banned ritualistic sacrifice. Um, I think a fair reading of the record clearly indicates that the city council was targeting a religious exercise. The question is not, is this generally applicable? The question for, for my approach, for the founders' approach is, were, was the city council exercising uh, jurisdiction that they did not have, criminalizing a religious practice? If the answer is yes, and I think it was yes, there's no compelling state interest uh, analysis, no list, least restrictive means. The city council can't make target a religion directly and say, you can't practice it. Uh, except for peyote, the government does say they target the native. I mean, it's generally applicable. Yes. Well, but, but then there's not undoubtedly are, are making a religious ceremony illegal. But if you if you said if the state of Oregon passed a law that said we are making uh, the Native American church ritual of ingesting peyote illegal, that clearly would be unconstitutional. If they pass a general drug law that has no mention of, of the Native American church or any church, that wouldn't be constitutional. You can't target religious groups or religious practices as such, as religious And practices. so if Hialeah passes an ordinance saying nobody can uh, chop off the heads of rabbits, yeah, can, an animal they, cruelty statute. Nobody can. And then it's okay, then, then they're yeah, ordinary. Yeah, that would just be an animal cruelty statute, and that would be okay. Yeah. That's actually what they thought they were doing. Well, if there, yeah, is, one, yeah. there is one uh, yeah. a, a section of the opinion, I believe it's joined by only two justices that relies upon bigoted remarks made by the city council members, but mostly the opinion proceeds on the theory that it is a, it's, it's, it's not targeted, but it is also not generally applicable since there's so many exceptions. General applicability might be part of the analysis of it does the law get tar does the law target religious exercises as such. It's been a while since I've read the record of that case. My memory of it is that there was a series of ordinances and it, it clearly was meant to you know, apply just to Santeria, but you know, my memory is not fresh on that. I, I, I wouldn't actually disagree with you yeah. about the record. The court sanitized it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the next question from Gabriella uh, Weigel uh, it, 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 I, th I think it's a very general question. I'm going to put it in a general way and then give her a particular example. I think her general question is whether your analysis is the same 
for laws that compel people to do something which is contrary to their religion versus laws that prevent people from doing something that is part of their religion. And she uses the example of a, a Christian physician who has uh, conscientious objections to uh, performing operations of, uh, uh, you know, in, in the transgender uh, context. Yeah. Uh, is that the same? Do you treat, uh, do you treat requirements uh, the same? And, and the historical example here, I think would be, uh, uh, one of the early cases uh, uh, in state court was compelling covenanters. I believe they were the uh, to serve on juries. Yeah, I was. I was actually going to think you you were going to go to Quakers in military service. Right. Well, I mean, that, that, that's probably the classic example in the founding era, right? Can you compel the Quakers to serve in the military? I mean, Quakers are pacifists for religious reasons. I mean, you know, they they don't believe in war um, or fighting. Uh, so, can you compel Quakers? to serve in the military or do they have a constitutional right not to serve in the military, right? Or do something else. Now, I will note at the time, the Quakers didn't want to do the something else either. So um, uh, the alternative you might provide might not be acceptable to them as well. So that complicates the matter. But the essential matter is, do the Quakers have a right to an exemption? The answer from the natural rights understanding, at least as I understand it, is no. Let me try to explain this, and I think the same answer would apply to the, the matter of the question at hand. Um, look, when you when you agree to be part of the social compact, the the most basic thing a social compact is a government is is it's a mutual defense pact. I won't hurt you, you don't hurt me. I'll defend you, you defend me from our common enemies. That's the most basic thing a government is is a mutual defense pact. Um, from that perspective, the Quakers say, we want to be part of the defense pack. We want to be part of a club, but we won't fight. Well, in justice, there's no reason to say the Quaker, look, if you want to be part of the community, if you want to be part of the mutual defense pack, you, you got to take the obligations of citizenship. And that means fighting. You don't have to be a part of the club. You don't have to join this community. But if you join, you got to fight. That's the natural rights understanding. Now, maybe we don't want to have a uh, com, uh, compel anyone. Maybe an all-volunteer army is better. Quakers probably won't make good soldiers. Maybe we give exemptions to the Quakers, but you don't have a right to an exemption. Maybe compelling all doctors to perform medical treatments is a very bad idea. I happen to think it is a very bad idea, that these laws are not good laws. In general, we shouldn't compel doctors to do things. I wouldn't want a doctor having to perform something on me that they're compelled to do. That's just a bad, it's a bad law. But the solution to the bad law is just not to pass it or withdraw it, not to give exemptions from it. I have a question from Justin Janke. Uh, what do you make of the framers' choice of the, of the verb prohibiting, where elsewhere they use words like abridging and, and infringing? Is there significance to that? I don't, I don't dwell on that. I think the more important words is no law. You know, Congress shall make no law with incorporation of Congress in the states. You know, the, the prohibition is categorical. It's not no laws unless there's a compelling state interest. So uh, I don't, um, I mean, I could well, talk about the law. What if the law like takes away something else? It's a, it penalizes, but it doesn't actually make it illegal to uh, practice your religion. Yeah, I like, um, well, I don't know. Give me, can you give me a concrete example with uh, the penalty, but not? Uh, so uh, uh, unconstitutional conditions doctrine. Uh, if, you, uh, if you exercise religion, then you can't get, uh, uh, then, we, then we will not let you have uh, compete for equal terms for playground surfacing. Yeah, I, th I, think, uh, I think the unconstitutional, I mean, if, if it really is like, you know, in the statute, if you practice your religion, right, or if you're a member of this church or go to this religious ceremony, then you don't whatever get government benefit. Unconstitutional conditions, I think, uh, would also be prohibited, but it would have to be targeted, not just an incidental burden. So Sherbert, for example, was the incident you know, because she... In your book, you defend the, or you, you disagree with the court's decision in Trinity Luther Lutheran versus Comer, the, the 
playground surface in case. I, I disagree with that on the on terms of that. It, well, maybe the reasoning. I mean, um, I would say it does not violate the establishment clause to give the school funds. Yeah. Right. So that's what I think I said in that. But the other, but you also say that it doesn't violate the free exercise clause to take away their equal right to this government benefit because they do religious stuff. I, I don't think you could target, you couldn't target the group and eliminate them on account of religion. That's what they did. That's what Missouri did. And the court said that was violated the free exercise clause and in your book i thought your book said that was incorrectly decided and i didn't uh yes and so you say the natural rights jurisdiction i'm reading on page 269 uh jurisdictional approach would concur with justice mind sotomayor's mm. dissent and trinity lutheran uh, because you say the free exercise clause affords the government, you know, wiggle room. I don't understand. I don't understand how you can take away people's equal right to government benefits because they practice religion. I, I have to. Um, I, I don't remember the passage. I have to. I have to understand in, in what context I'm saying they could agree with her. Uh, I just don't remember. So I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer off the top of my head right now. But what's the page? I'll go look that up. I have to. I think it was my own reasoning. 269. Okay. Well, the <laughs> listeners should go listen. I, I, along with the listeners, should go and read what I say there and see if it holds up. Um, I just don't remember. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, so the uh, so it, here's a question from Anthony Deirdre. If I haven't read it, so I'll, I'll have to read it to you rather than summarize. Uh, if I understand Professor Munoz correctly, incidental burdens on religious exercise do not contravene the First Amendment, even if the religious community in question would experience the burden as severe or preclusive. Uh, that conception of free exercise seems likely to foment civil unrest among religious factions that feel seriously burdened and are large enough to wield political power as a block, but not large enough to force an exemption or concession. And that seems in tension with the Federalist concern with factional strife and the Constitution's concern with diffusing power. Yeah, very good. It's a great question, but I actually, I think it's exactly the opposite. I think if you read Federalist 10, and I've written on this, not in this book, but in a Political Science Journal article, which most people, normal people don't read, but um, no. So let me try to summarize what I think the question is asking, right? I mean, some laws have passed would really burden religious people. We've been talking about all sorts of laws. Uh, and, and Mr. Deirdre's question is, well, if laws, if I say there's no uh, First Amendment protections as a shield from these laws, well, I'm going to allow the community to pass laws that some religious people are going to find very burdensome. And wouldn't that lead to factional conflict? Or, tension in the community. I think for good reason, lots of people think that way. Madison's response to that is, if a law is going to be passed that will really burden a part of the community, that part of the community will be activated to resist the law, that they will have to make common cause with other individuals and try to explain why this is a bad law, right? And they're going to have to be political. They're going to have to make arguments about justice on why this is an improper law to be passed. And Madison thinks that actually applying the same law to everyone will lessen the chance that bad laws get passed. It's, it's a, a calculation of his political science. Let me go back to the um, 18th Amendment. And um, what about if we passed a law banning all alcohol, uh, that would make the Catholic mass, I'm Catholic, that would make the Catholic mass illegal. Well, actually, Madison would say, you would never get such a law passed, right, if there was no exemption available. In fact, the availability of the exemption is how you get laws like prohibition, right? In fact, Madison would say exemptions facilitate laws that are unjust. Right. I mean, he goes even further than I go, 
right? If the availability of legislative exemptions helps facilitate laws that burden in religious people's freedom, right? right? Or even to put it more candidly, exemptions are the are the, how they buy off religious opposition to law. Madison says the surest way to get just laws is that they be applied on the lawmaker and their friends. That is the equal application of the law is the surest protection to make sure that bad laws don't get passed. Now he might be wrong. His political science might be wrong. It might not work given our contemporary uh, polarization, uh, our decreasing religious um, character. Um, I'm actually open to those conversations. I mean, it, it might be that the, f the founders natural rights approach, their political science and constitutionalism does not work in our modern times. I'm just trying to set forth what that political science and constitutionalism is. And we had an hour to do that between <laughs> us and the time is now uh, up. So, uh, uh th thank you, Philip, for a fascinating, uh, uh, explication of your excellent book. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Professor McConnell. Errors and all. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor, uh, actually, for, for me to have you participate in this discussion, and thank you to the Federalist Society. Indeed, on behalf of both myself and the Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today, and I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. Uh, we welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep an eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We're adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.